Initiative. Welcome back, folks, to the Roll for Initiative podcast, issue number 48. I'm sitting in. DM Vince is one of your hosts, along with DM Jason. Howdy. DM Nick. Hi, how are you? And me again. No, I'm kidding. And we're here together, the three. Well, it's a schizophrenia. <laughs> That's right. Hello, I'm somebody else. And uh, we have a great show for you tonight. And we're back on track, issue number 48. We have some fun exciting topics to talk about so we're gonna throw it over to nick oh no i'm kidding yeah, well, nick's like what uh. sure i'm ready let's do this what you gonna do brother so uh jason you were uh gathering some information i saw today i thought maybe you wanted to put that out on the podcast to help out for the project oh you were doing. yeah no that's not for public consumption sorry oh well, my bad no no that's okay we didn't say anything so it's all okay. right uh yeah so then we'll just head into our first segment of the night then Typical of all the evil creatures in the world, I like to find one with table manners. What are you kidding me? I spent years cultivating the worst table manners on the planet. Table manners. Okay, uh, in table manners, this week we're going to be coming around something I think kind of interesting I haven't really done with uh, at all, but uh, martial arts fighting in AD&D. And... Uh, just a little bit about the rules that are come out of Oriental Adventures, if you want to use them. And, you know, kind of do a little bit of a round table here if you've used them or if you haven't, if you plan on using them. So Let's let's start with a primer because I have never used them. Well, I don't know anything about them. Well, I haven't used them myself, but I have the Oriental Adventures book, and I've read through them. And I'm actually kind of surprised that it's really not that hard to use. Um, no, it's when not. you, uh, I was when just, you going? Yeah, go ahead, Nick. Well, yeah, that's just what you've got. Go, <laughs> okay. but uh, yeah, it's on page uh, 101 to 106 in the uh, Orientals Adventures book. Um, covers the uh, the idea behind martial arts, and it really starts with like a the philosophy behind it and the history of of martial arts in an Oriental culture and why they were developed. Part of it getting into like you know r- religious beliefs and philosophy and also out of necessity and there's a there is a bit of historical precedence for this mm-hmm. um, at times in various cultures like in China and Japan uh, the commoners were at one time or another it was illegal that for them to own weapons so in order to defend themselves, this was another thing that kind of developed out of that is using these martial arts styles. So it was a combination of things of religious beliefs uh, uh, and also out of necessity for uh, without having regular weapons that they can own because they were outlawed from time to time. So there's a pretty good several paragraphs on that. And then it gets into the styles. And there's really two different types of styles. There's the common styles that are already known, and those are uh, karate, kung fu, taekwondo, and jiu-jitsu. Right. And then you have custom styles. You custom. Can, uh, yeah, you could create your own style of martial art. Okay. Now, 
the rules for this now let me actually let me get into custom styles first i'll talk about the uh i mean the common styles i'll get into custom styles and there's a there's a chart in the book where it gives the name the number of attacks the damage the the martial arts style does and it says armor class and this is a little where i get a little confused when it talks about armor class is the a measure of the degree of protection the character gains when using the style their protection right. comes from the character's training may allow him to avoid deflect or withstand blows right it says mm-hmm. ac like six for kung fu does that mean you add six to your armor class or is your armor class six when you I, use this style I've, I've always I'm, based I'm, it off of that was what your armor class started as okay it sounds like it because they're not giving you a plus or a minus they're not reading it like an adjustment right right no so if you had like karate style, your armor class naturally would be eight minus any modifiers from like decks and stuff. Right. Like mm-hmm. normal people would start with a 10. You'd start with an eight. Okay. All right. Now that makes sense. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> and this is why we do this. We could talk about things for clarification. Yeah. Um, then it goes into the principal attack of the type of style like karate is hand. And then it talks about special maneuvers and there's a whole slew of different maneuvers uh, that are that are associated with each type of style. I'm sorry. Every time we start talking about martial arts, I can't stop thinking about Ross from Friends when he decided <laughs> that he knew karate. Oh, yeah. Oh, God. Remember the one he was like, I know Unagi. Unagi, yeah. <laughs> and they're like salmon spring roll. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. So, so but, okay, but I, I got a question on these. So, we talked before about monks, right. you know, mm-hmm. which com- coming out of, out of the player's handbook, and yeah. there was a lot of question about some of the things that a monk could do, like deflecting missile attacks and having mm-hmm. better armor class because of that. Does this get into the same territory? The same questions come up? Um, yes, with the special maneuvers. Yes, there are things that address that for the martial arts style, mm-hmm. but not particular to monks per se but do do if if somebody's doing these different martial arts in the book do they get the same ability to for example deflect or to knock an arrow down in flight or um whatever? yes yes okay. there are things like that yeah um and and i'll get to that in just a, in a minute because okay. there's the thing about creating a style and i think this is very important when you have the custom styles in the book it really puts it in the hands of the DM, not the player, to create the style of martial arts. Right. That, okay. that you wanna that you wanna make. Doesn't okay. mean that the player can't maybe have some say so, but it's I guess obviously up to the DM's final discretion. So and maybe a player could come to the DM and say, look, I want to bring this style into the game. Can you mm-hmm. set it up? Yeah. Right. Okay. Okay. And then you have uh, the special maneuvers they can add to your special style that you want to make. Um, and I like this. The special maneuvers are interesting. They're they're broken down in the various subtypes. There's um, kick, which is obviously you're kicking somebody. Lock, which yes. is where you're gripping an opponent and not allowing them to attack you. Which is yeah. a, a common thing in, like, for example, jujitsu, which I I learned a little bit about when I was in the in the army. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, there's movement, which is the, your control of your body position. 
There's push, strike, which is basically a major attack. Mm-hmm. Then there's throw, vital area, which is a precise strike. Basically, it's it's a strike on your body, like um, if you remember, what was it the in uh, Kill Bill, the five finger exploding <laughs> heart technique? Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. kind of like that. <laughs> And then there's one like what you were talking about, weapon. This is where you either how do you deal with fighting opponents with weapons? And one of them is like you were talking about weapon catch. Mm-hmm. Where you can um catch a weapon and that could be it could be a missile weapon. So when they're saying weapon catch, that sounds more like any weapon. If you're yeah, swinging a sword or whatever. Well, they do have missile deflection as one of the things under movement. Yeah, uh, yes, and that's under movement is missile deflection. So weapon catch is more that, that, that kind of thing you see in a movie where they clap catch their hands the together sword. and they yes. catch the sword. Right. I'm sorry. I forget that missile deflections are under movement. Did you see the Mythbusters where they tried doing that? No, what happened? Oh, they made... Because no, no, they did the missile deflect. They kind of got that, but the one where they tried to catch a sword between two hands, obviously Ooh. they weren't going to just try to do it themselves. So they made their what do they call ballistics gel that they used to make like the fake hands out of? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And oh, if it had been a real hand, it would have been so nasty. Like it slicing was, fingers off and stuff. Oh, it's just I cringe even thinking about it. Hmm. However, these are these. This is the game, so it's different. <laughs> Games are more like movies than they are like suspension of belief of disbelief, right? Yeah, I, I, it, it, it's a lot more fun to play a D and D game that plays out like Big Trouble in Little China than it yeah. is to play one that comes out like you know Bill Nye the Science Guy. Yeah, yeah very much so. <laughs> so. Uh, but there's when you're talking about that weapon one, the the weapons special maneuvers. There's kind of an exception to that, which is steel cloth. Yeah. This is very interesting. With huh. this maneuver, the character never need be without a weapon. Taking a 6 to 10 foot piece of cloth, the character whirls, snaps it tight, keeping it constant motion and giving a rigidity of a spear. Cloth is treated as a spear, except that it cannot be thrown. It's like a, like a wet towel, but more deadly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty cool, actually. Huh. And then you have mental and physical training for the different... Um, maneuvers now i did find something under mental and physical training blind fighting remember we were talking about that hey there's rules for blind sighting of sighting blind sighting i was blindsided by the blind fighting and tell uh, us more yes i will uh and it says that a character with blind fighting for under their special maneuver is only a minus one to hit when fighting in darkness or blinded or facing an invisible opponent However, any of these combinations with a silent spell render the character effectively blind again. And this maneuver is constantly in effect. So once you have this maneuver, you're only minus one to hit when you're fighting invisible opponents or in darkness or blinded. Hmm. Wow. So that's kind of interesting. So people looking for that rule, if you want, you can use the martial arts or if you want to just lift the blind fighting skill out of there. You can. All right, um, so, so 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 break it down a little bit on the combat here, because I'm hearing the different things like the kicks, the holds, the grabs, the flips. Well, really, what How's it, it is? Play out? Well, basically, when you look at the common martial arts styles, it's almost like any other 
attacks with weapons. You have number of attacks per round, the damage you do, and it really just depends on the type of uh, maneuver that you're going to do, if you're going to do a special maneuver. Okay. And so, uh, if you're going to do a special maneuver, um, I don't know if for special maneuvers, if you could do the same number of attacks per round as your your main attack is. Like for karate. Yeah, you could... I don't see why not. We never... Yeah. Like if you wanted to do three... Um, what is that? The strike? If you yeah. wanted to do three iron fists in a round, I guess mm-hmm. you could. Which is actually pretty nasty. Because... <laughs> Is if you read Iron Fist, mm-hmm. it does one to ten points of damage on each attack. <laughs> so you have the potential of doing thirty points of damage with that one attack in a round. Yeah, they also go as far as doing the uh, how the uh, weapon speed modifier were the original rules, and mm-hmm. the armor class uh, modifier. They even have that for the various kicks and punches too. If you want to get into all that. Well, I got to yeah. assume that the weapon speed is going to be the fastest possible, right? Yeah. But what about the uh, versus AC? How does it work out for that? Well, each does... each special maneuver has a hard or soft next to it, mm-hmm. and then you would compare it to the chart, and that's how you would modify it versus the AC. Well, the AC modifiers are always about you know the type of weapon. So, for example, that a sword can. Uh, get through chainmail differently than a mace can, right? Right, right. Uh, since you're using, I guess, your hands and your feet, you're never going to have a different type of hand. Is Wouldn't it always be like a club, like a blunt attack? I guess with the different styles, there's different ways of hitting. Okay. Yeah. So they actually do have different stuff. Well, yeah. Because like under Strike, for example, there's one that's called Eagle Claw. Yeah. <laughs> And with Eagle Claw. I I would require the players to make the claw of Eagle with their hand as saying this. (laughs) The physical exercise and concentration character can summon immense crushing strength into his hand. This is nasty. On successful to hit roll, he can shatter objects, crush metal items, and cause 3d10 points of damage on an attack. 3d10. 3d10. And Eagle Claw is, yeah, it's under the strike. Uh, and not all martial arts get these. Uh, I mean, it looks I, like I'm assuming does. you have to raise up to a certain level as a character before you get this kind of stuff, yeah, right? Yeah, these uh, special maneuvers, you have to learn each one Yeah, as you go along. And you yep. have to, which goes on to the uh, the next thing, which actually a really good segue into learning martial arts. Uh, according to the rules, the, the martial arts is like any other proficiency, if you're using proficiency slots, they cost a proficiency slot per style. Okay. Um, so, and they would, now it doesn't say... Per, you mean per fighting style? Yeah. Yeah. So not, not so if, if you've got, if you picked one of the fighting styles and it's got like four different things, they're not four different proficiencies. Uh, like just if the karate's got you know a kick and a punch and a 
and a grab and all those kind of things. You don't learn each one of those movements as a separate proficiency. You learn karate as a proficiency. After he's been studying I, with the master for a month, uh, the character spends one proficiency slot and gains the basics of the style. The armor class, right. the number of attacks, and the damage. He does not gain any of the special maneuvers or weapons that may be taught by the style. Okay. So you get the and basics. Each special of the maneuver style. would, I guess, would cost another proficiency slot, right? Would be tr- various training, yeah. Okay, yeah. that's a good Which way to start in, preventing yeah. the characters from getting too powerful with this stuff. Yeah. So when you initially learn the yeah. the, the martial art, like like I'm using karate for example, you learn the basics, which is number of attacks, damage, AC, and principal attack. Uh huh. That's what you learn. Yeah. Now to gain the special maneuvers, each one costs a proficiency slot. Yeah. To learn, so you, you got to spend proficiency slots to get each individual thing. Now, are those non-weapon proficiency or are those weapon proficiency slots? It just says additional proficiency slots. It's got to be weapon proficiency. That's what I'm thinking, too. Because, I mean, this stuff you're describing sounds pretty powerful. Yes, it can be. Especially when when you're talking about the special maneuvers, absolutely. But when you're talking just the basic style, like under Kung Fu, yes, you get two attacks per round and a damage one to six points of damage for hand attack. So when you get in those special maneuvers after you learn them, yeah, it could get pretty nasty. Yeah, because I mean, otherwise... <laughs> what, what what about armor? Can you can you do any of these with armor on? It would sound like you could. It doesn't say anywhere that, as far as I can tell, that you cannot do any of this without armor on. How would you guys play it? Hmm. I, I would play the, the heavier the armor, the, you would not be able to do these special marks. You, 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 common sense plays into here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, don't, I, I mean, can't see anyone doing a roundhouse groin kick. For example, full, we like, played... It's not going to happen. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, you're not going to do it. When we played with, you know, Joe, and we played Oriental Avengers, when, when I was playing a samurai, I was only able to learn jujitsu ju- because the samurai is all bulky and using the sword... And he uses uh, his attacks to sway the people away from him so he could stab them as they're on the ground or whatever. So, Yeah, I mean, even leather armor, is it's not just like wearing a leather jacket and a pair of Jim Morrison pants. I mean, that stuff <laughs> is pretty serious. So, yeah, I, could, I, I don't think you should have I, any. I think, yeah, depending on the, the type of armor, uh, I would say, yeah, there might be some modifiers allowed. Like, maybe there's a couple of things, like you said, you know, Vince, like, you know, common sense. Mm-hmm. Let's, there's a couple things maybe you could do. But, you know, go watch a Tony Jaw movie sometime and try to imagine him wearing anything. <laughs> it's just not going to happen. Well, look at the Bruce Lee movies. Every time he got into a fight, Bruce Lee, like, ripped off almost all of his clothes. Yeah, it's, it, you, you got to do it. So I, I think even though it doesn't say that, I would definitely say that unless – I'm not looking at all the different stuff because I don't actually own the book, but – uh, you know, maybe a couple of basic punches or something might work at a reduced efficiency. Now, Matt, uh, our producer here, he did bring up a, a point that there are some things you could do in armor, like certain locks and chokes you could do. Eh. I could see some defensive stuff. That's where jujitsu comes into it, I would think. Yes. Jiu-jitsu is basically a martial arts style where you use your opponent's uh, momentum or... You're using the, the opponent against himself, basically. Or what's that one that Seagal uses, well, pretends to use? Uh, <laughs> a pistol? A kijitsu. That one. Okay. 
That one drunken I could see. Master? No, oh. he's not Drunken Master, Nick. Hey, that's awesome. <laughs> he drunken Master it. 2 is an awesome movie. Yeah, definitely. There, okay, so there you go. Creating a new style. That would be an awesome style to create. Drunken Master? Yeah, yeah of course. Yeah. Drunken Master. I, I actually had a friend. He learned a style. It's called, uh, I think it's called Five Animal Style. Right. And there's like tiger, monkey, just like the okay. thing out of Kung Fu Panda. That's a real style. Apparently. Right. Yeah, it's uh it's monkey, tiger, um, dragon, this praying mantis. Else. Ocelot, I don't know. There's tons of them. Snake. Yeah. So I could do panda. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, is, is there one for sloth? Because I could probably do a sloth. Yeah, I could do. I could do wombat. <laughs> yeah, I got. I got that one covered. Crouching Ard- wombat, <laughs> sleeping aardvark. I, sleeping I can handle. <laughs> no. So, all right. So here, here's one. Here's a now, question here's the, for you. Yeah. Okay. You had a question. Got, all right. So you got a character who's uh, using some of the martial arts fighting. Uh-huh. Uh, and then the other guy decides to try to grapple him using the D- Dungeon Master Guide oh, tables. <laughs> How do you resolve it? Uh, uh, that's where you shoot the players. No, that's where you sweep the leg. <laughs> sweep the leg? Why sweep the leg. Why <laughs> waiting you don't for the martial arts to a gunfight. <laughs> <laughs> I guess you could play them like they're weapons. Yeah, why not? Well, yeah. Yes. I, 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 would, I would, like, I would throw up my hands and... <laughs> Discuss. It's like, well, wait. you know what I, I think you got to do is the next time uh, your players come up against a vampire, vampire. I think you should martial. have some martial arts. Oh I think the God. vampire should know some martial arts. <laughs> Why not? Every vampire in Buffy the Vampire Slayer knows martial arts instantly. <laughs> that <would be> awesome. <laughs> Perfect. A, a vampire that knows karate. Yeah, oh, I swear oh. to God, that that show. Every time someone died, and became a vampire, they automatically knew martial arts. Automatically, no matter what. Yeah, because it's probably part of the uh, like the orientation kit that you get. A Brazilian you know, jiu-jitsu here, black yeah. belt vampire. <laughs> what? <laughs> Brazilian Oh, you know, hey, now that would be. I want to see some from all the stuff you're saying. How about capoeira? Mm. Put that. Put you guys have you guys seen capoeira fighting? No. Chupacabra. Oh. No capoeira. It's the Brazilian martial art that was invented. By slaves who were not allowed to, to you know, they, they would have gotten in a lot of trouble if anybody had seen them training as fighters, right? Now, I've heard they, of the Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Or Blanca from well, Street Fighter if they were, if, if they were out oh. there, you know, in the fields practicing fighting each other, somebody would have noticed it pretty quickly. So what they did was they invented a, a type of martial arts that looks like you're dancing. I thought that but, was savat. I've never heard of that, but um, it's probably Actually, simple. Actually, savat is like a French style, from what I understand. It's a French martial art. Uh you know, it, it could be really similar, similar things. It's I don't a know. French stick kicking style, like Matt. Matt knows all of this stuff. <laughs> well, if you get, if you He's get the a one chance, who's talking about Brazilian uh, jujitsu black belt vampires now. Well, he knows all this stuff because he was doing what the uh, mixed martial arts thing a while back, so he knew. Oh, he was. I thought he did some taping for that. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, look for look for a movie called Only the Strong. Uh, Only it's a movie strong. from like the '90s that's got you know, some capoeira in it. I'm sure there's a bunch more movies out there that 
that feature it's it's pretty neat to watch chuck norris in the octagon great film yeah chuck norris <laughs> chuck norris so, is all right. awesome. don't mess so, with so, chuck <laughs> so you got these fighting styles how about yeah. how you want to um uh, apply them to different monsters. Like, which ones are they going to work better and worse with? Obviously, well, human. I don't think going to work Judicial the same as humans, right? On a gelatinous cube. No. Just saying. <laughs> don't think that you can use the 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 weight of a gelatinous cube against it. No. no. It's, not, it's hard to get a grip. Yeah, I don't see anything mentioning about monsters actually using martial arts. No, I'm saying using against the monster. Oh, okay. Can against a bunch of. I, I, Using orcs. <laughs> That's what I thought you meant, Jason. <laughs> yeah, I want to see the gelatinous cube using Thai boxing. <laughs> Mutai. <laughs> yeah, sweep the leg. What leg? Go balls that use Taekwondo. That would be you got awesome. a problem with that? Cobra Kai. <laughs> Never dies. <laughs> Speaking, there's a, there is a studio here in Pennsylvania that's called Cobra Kai Karate. Oh, God. <laughs> it has the same sweep symbol. The leg. has the same symbol as the one from the movie, too. Oh yeah, so so of these different styles, I mean, do any of the attacks require that it be a humanoid that you're going against? You know, because um, I would assume that some martial arts have to do with taking advantage. It doesn't of say in the anatomical rules. knowledge, right? And I'd see it doesn't say it in the rules. Like obviously, like chokehold is not going to work on something like a a flump, <laughs> right? <laughs> Why you'd be choking a flump, I don't know, but I just threw that out there. But, <laughs> <laughs> But, yeah, I mean, you would have to choke something that has a throat. Like, yeah. I don't know. You could use choke hold on a basilisk. Uh-huh. Why not a dragon? Uh-huh. <laughs> you could try well, doing there that. you go. So that, that's that's a perfect example is, is that uh, if you're talking about a choke hold, you got to figure not only does it have to have a neck, but it's got to be a neck that you can get your arms around. Right. Um, so, yeah, so, I mean, some I, common sense is going to have to apply here. Yeah, so I mean, I think that's got to be a really important thing is that if you're thinking about DMing uh, martial art techniques in your game, you can't just let the player say, well, it says right here that I can do this technique, so therefore I can. You've got to take a look at, well, what are you trying to use that technique against? Right. And also later on when you're talking about all these techniques and styles and stuff, that eventually the player who has all the this martial arts styles want to improve it. And they're gonna have to seek out a master, which is apparently not easy to do. No, you have to. So you have to find a master, learn from them, and if you want to be a master yourself, could be considered a master of a style. You have to <laughs> defeat the already reigning champion. That's where you get into the whole Kumite thing. So, okay. <laughs> oh boy, there's not there's not a Miyagi on every corner to help you. No, <laughs> paint the fence. <laughs> He's not standing right there doing that. Yeah. So right. So basically, that's martial so, arts in a uh, nutshell. Yeah, pretty much. So, so would you, Jason? Would you use it or not? Uh, you know, I think the players that have a lot of fun with it. You know, it, it, I, I wouldn't want to see it getting widespread, and you'd have to come up with some way to balance it out so that it doesn't just become. Uh, you know, I, I, I would definitely make them take their armor off if they're going to do this. Uh, they're not going to be walking around in a full pack and doing all those kind of things. Uh, and if it does come in, because I think they would have a lot of fun with it, I would definitely introduce some kind of a lich who could do taekwondo. 
Oh my gosh. Like, liches aren't dangerous enough. <laughs> well, hey, if the players are going to get it, then they're going to get it back at them. Oh, I would totally see the big yeah. the big bad of the story, at least using some martial arts style against them. Have to. I'm just trying to think of, you know, kobolds that know Taekwondo. That would be... <laughs> Just, just, well, I feel like there's a there's this also a certain level of intelligence that's required to do some of this stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. yeah. You ever watch the movie Kung Fu Hustle? No. <laughs> that, that, there was no intelligence involved in that movie, so. Yeah. Nice, Matt. Crane kicking kobolds. I love it. <laughs> I like the flavor, though. I mean, I like the flavor of it, you know, if you're going to do sort of a like, like a big trouble in Little China kind of uh, mm-hmm. adventure. You now, know, here's that's an interesting thought. magic and everything, right? Jack here's an interesting Jack. thought. Now, like we were talking about monsters in the, these martial arts. Yeah. How about maybe a special monster martial arts style that's developed by intelligent monsters to use? That only that yeah. kind of monster could use because it relies on having that many legs or whatever. Yeah. Maybe maybe dragons have a special martial arts style. Just that's what that they need. <laughs> You know, like using all that tail lash and wing buffets and what have you. Isn't that like Dragon Claw style Kung Fu or something? Or Matt, is there something yeah. like that? <laughs> <That's> Matt's <laughs> like, he's there tired. is something. something. <laughs> He's something. Yeah, but I think I think what you'll do is you'll come up against a tiger who knows some kind of martial arts, and it'll be called like Person Finger. Person. <laughs> Pull my finger. No. <laughs> yes. The deadliest of martial arts. The touch of death, like when Bart Simpson on The Simpsons. Wah! <laughs> I think we beat this one to death, so... Yeah. Yep. Anybody else have anything to add on to this? Or if you've used martial arts in your uh, game, or you know of people who have, or you just don't want to use it at all, and you think it's crazy, you know, let us know. And I um, guess we'll move on to our next segment. You think I'm mad. Perhaps I am. What are you, a wizard, a genius? Darn. A perfectly good brain wasted. Game mechanics. Time for game mechanics. So we're going to go back to the Dungeon Master's Guide, and we're going to go pretty early in the in the book here to something that may uh, be overlooked by a lot of people, and that is spying. Spy so, tickets. <laughs> Oh, we have so many opportunities for music in this show. I mean, we got kung fu fighting, we got spies like us. This could be a really good episode if we only had the rights. Mm. <laughs> now we could only so, we could play like up to twenty seconds, and then we'd be okay. Maybe I don't know. So, uh, so spying is something that I've always thought of this section as being uh, part that fits more into the the, the kind of war gaming side of D&D, the, 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 the miniatures wargaming roots goes back closer to the chainmail stuff. Let's, uh, although, I mean, I could, I could see how you might uh, obviously want to use spying in the role-playing side of it, but the way this is laid out is more of a something happens, let's see if it succeeds. It's, it's kind of close to the assassinations table uh, in that sense. And it's laid out more to be about hiring a spy. So it's treating spies really as NPCs who are generally going to be assassins in order to do this. Mm. Uh, If you're sending the spy out on a mission, you have to determine the difficulty of the mission first of all. Um, So it's it's definitely not something that you're trying to role play out and think about everything that occurs. It's more like you're uh, laying siege to a castle let's say or something like that. 
and uh, you need to send somebody in to try and find out something about the layout of the castle inside or sure. uh, anything like that. Or, or, or you want to send a spy to a neighboring country to bring back information about some things along the way, like about some, some political plans or something like that. In, in the castle, that type of stuff. Okay. So... Need to steal the great MacGuffin. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, once you've determined, so what you, first thing you have to do is figure out just how difficult is. This. So the simple mission is just something you're just trying to find out the state of defenses. You're just trying to go in, look around, uh, not get detected as an interloper. That's a simple mm-hmm. mission. Uh, it goes to, uh, all all the way up to an extraordinary difficult one, which is basically a, a very long hazardous nature. You've got the spy has to actually. Um, basically, go undercover and be accepted into the group, and and those James types of Bond type stuff. Exactly. Okay. Depending on the level of the assassin or the spy that you're sending out, it's a pretty basic approach as to how difficult. I mean, as to how likely they are to succeed. If you're talking about, let, let's just say, let's put someone right in the middle here, like a seventh level assassin. Uh, a simple mission, going in and uh, just doing a little reconnaissance, eighty percent chance of success. A huh. really extraordinarily difficult one, only a thirty percent chance. Hmm. Really, really wide difference, and and all of this is also uh, influenced by the amount of time that it's going to take to do it. Because when they first go in, you know, it, it's okay, okay, it's it's perhaps uh, you know one roll to do it. But the longer it's going to take, the more times you're going to have to roll, the the higher the chance that they're going to be discovered is. Um, failure doesn't automatically mean um, that the spy is discovered and hanged at dawn. <laughs> There's also a spy failure table, and it's a question of how bad was the failure. So if it's uh, – you're rolling a percentile. If it was a 0 to 35, you can still try again. You can actually – the uh, uh, the spy wasn't able to pull it off, but they weren't caught they just failed at what they were trying to do. So you can try it again, but you're going to have to figure out again how long it'll take and you know take a longer thing. Uh, the the higher up you go, the, the the next chance you could you could possibly uh, be imprisoned um, if they are really un unlucky. They're caught in the act. They're imprisoned, and you never hear from them again. That's just that's all you know. Um, that's not good. Not not good, but it gets worse because oh. as the rolls go up, once you get over an 81, the spy actually gets caught with proof of their activity and they are tortured. Oh, and boy. they either are just killed by the torture or they reveal everything. Your plans have been, been um, compromised or they even turn coat and – then you you have the chance of the spy coming back to you and giving you false information and actually spying against you. Yikes! <laughs> and uh, the the highest roll, anything of ninety six to to hundred, the spy is killed. So you know, actually caught and hanged at dawn. Or if there's counter spies, they can turn coat and be you know, turn back against you. Mm. So none of these are really a opportunity for role playing the thing. You know, you're not going to. Uh, Go in as a spy yourself and roll on that table to say, oh, well, you know, I'm going up and I'm sitting at the king's table. Do they notice me? Let me roll and see if they do. 
the tables aren't really going to work for that. For that type of thing, you need to use a little bit more common sense, maybe use some of your thieving abilities, uh, think about their charisma and their intelligence, perhaps roll some you know, increasingly high difficulty checks. This is more about you know, playing it like you're looking at a larger wargaming type of situation. Um, so as such, I've never used it because I've never really played D&D in the chainmail wargaming type of style. Or the political uh, sense, maybe. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I've never really played that that side of things. Have you guys ever taken that approach? I, I haven't myself, no. I briefly touched upon this way back in when I was playing original Dungeons and Dragons. We played we had higher level characters with, you know, strongholds and everything. So we did have a lot of sending in spies and DM would roll for that, but they really didn't get any much more detail than that. Yeah, so this is perfect for the, for that kind of play. Um, the question of you know what what type of uh, NPC is going to make a good spy to send in is a little bit looser because basically what you're saying is you're hiring for an assassin. It's uh, you're calling them a spy, but they're the they're the characters that you're expecting to have those uh, skills, and they're the ones that have the spying table. So mm-hmm. so you'd go with them. Now, one thing I did find interesting about the spying. Uh, stuff in the dmg is when you go to page 34 on your hirelings mm-hmm. yeah you talk about the spy i thought that was as, really a, as a unique type of hireling you mean right because it says under there this is generally reserved for the assassin Assassins. character class but mm-hmm. you know it says such activity other types of characters can be paid to spy but such activity must be at the discretion of the dungeon master. Right. And and they're, never in, gonna, and it, they're never going to go above eighth level either. Right, right. It gets into how you would handle uh, another class besides an assassin playing a spy. And like you said, they'll, they'll never get beyond eighth level as far as ability checks under the assassin spying table. Mm-hmm. So you could have a magic user as a spy. Why not? Yeah. Sure. I mean, when it gets into the, the, the details here, they talk about kind of convincing the character and offering a certain sum, and it, it kind of feels more like uh, if, if we go to modern spy games or spy novels or anything like that, it gets more into the developing an asset, you know, right. rather than actually um, training a spy up from the beginning. So I'd, I'd actually mark them down a lot lower. You've got to think, how loyal is this person going to be? So maybe your charisma comes into it in terms of, you know, are they really going to want to go all out for you? How good, how good are they going to be at it? it? It seems like a desperation measure, measure that you might want to try. Right. Or, also on page 34, it's one of mm-hmm. my favorite illustrations out of the DMG. Oh, the mouse? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the rat god there. That's it. Yeah, they go in with like the Mickey Mouse. Uh, yeah, they're going this or whatever. better work. <laughs> One of my favorites. Awesome. So yeah, so so as far as the spying tables go and all those types of things, uh, it's a great thing to use for NPCs if you need to uh, have a little bit of political intrigue or you just want to use it as a reconnaissance method. Mm-hmm. I think it's something to go good to. Um, I know a lot of people don't use NPCs that extensively in their games, and uh, these types of things I think are a good way to encourage you to think about how you can actually use hirelings and NPCs and you know sending others out to, to really do your stuff for you. Yeah. Sounds like a plan. Well, then let's move on to our next room. 
Feature, 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 Theater, Theater. Today we got in <laughs> Creature Feature Theater is, I was actually kind of taken aback by this. We're going to the Monster Manual 2. Aha, I tricked you guys. Ooh. Yes, Monster Manual Part 2. Part 2. And we are going to talk about the Mongrel Men. I love this monster because it's just like it's not any particular race or bloodline. It's like a mixture of things. Yeah, it's it's like a mix of everything. Human, orc, cobalt. And it's not an evil creature, too. <laughs> you just love that flump, don't you? No, I really don't. Oh, okay. <laughs> it's, it's, I just like making fun of it. This creature is like a misunderstood like creature. It's lawful, yeah. It's yeah. lawful neutral. And, Quasimodo. Yeah. And to Actually, survive... I do have an issue about the alignment. Why is that? Well, for everybody that's following in, it's page 92 on the Monster Manual 2. It says mm-hmm. lawful neutral. Yeah. Just don't see them as lawful neutral. I kind of see them just as neutral. So I, I just don't. I just can't really see him like that as a lawful neutral because you know. I'm, I read what lawful neutral is about. I'm like that just doesn't sound like they'd be like really strict in that sort of thing, following law. You know. Well, the only oh, what's, what's your issue with it. Well, it, it just I I just see them as true neutral because I because it talks about how they've been uh, they're seldom welcome in lawful or good societies and usually abused or enslaved by chaotic and evil groups. Well, mm-hmm. <laughs> only at least one really neutral. So I don't know because they pickpocket as well, but they had to do that to survive. Yeah. They have to do that to survive the- though. Well, yeah. They're not doing it to, for, you know, uh, financial gain. They're doing it to survive. Mm-hmm. So they're staying yeah, within I mean, the law, a... pretty much, to survive. So, I mean, it's saying that they're, you know, they're seldom, seldom welcome in lawful or good societies, usually abused or enslaved. Mm-hmm. Uh, they've, it's forced them to develop special skills for survival. And I think... If I compare it to something, maybe compare it to any any group of people who's been kind of uh, you know shunned from society and, and forced to create their own uh, ways of getting by. So maybe think of like the Rami. Is it is it is it Romani? Uh, the, 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 they get called gypsies in Europe. Uh, mm. You know, and Romani, in order yeah. Romani. Thank you. I think, the, I think um, it's Romani. Yeah. So. They've had to develop a really strong set of you know code to live by within their own society in order to really keep it cohesive because they don't have a homeland and they don't have a place that they're easily accepted into other societies. So you could kind of say that it's a lawful group within their own society because they have to follow the traditions. Yeah. Yes. I mean, I'm just trying. I'm rationalizing why they might be lawful here and why I would be okay with it. And if I'm going to take them as lawful, then the way I would read that is perhaps mongrel men have strong traditions within themselves so that they can maintain their, you know, their survival in these difficult situations where they're hunted and, and chased and, uh, you know, oppressed by everybody else. I guess that's a way of rationalizing. Sure. See, when sure. I totally see this creature, I keep thinking of that creature from the Goonies. Oh, sloth? Yeah, sloth. I keep thinking of him for some reason. Sloth, loath, chunk. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, he was the, great. So, so the mongrel men. So, when are they going to show up in your in your game? Well, didn't you find a place where they were, Nick? 
yeah, actually, they originally appeared in Module I-1, Dwellers of the Forbidden City. Mm-hmm. And there's actually a couple really cool sections in in this module where they are featured. There's a whole section of the Forbidden City where they've created their own little area for themselves to, to survive in. And there's actually a pretty interesting... Um, section to where the player characters, if I can find it here real quick, where if they get into the main compound of the mongrel men, they might have to um, do a kind of a fight, a kind of a combat with the leader. Uh, and it's more like a, not necessarily, a, it's not a fight to the death, but it's more like a fight to see who's just the more powerful. And yeah. whoever, if the, I think it, if I remember reading it, if the player characters win, they win the respect and uh, trust of the mongrel men, which could be uh, beneficial to the player characters in the long run. So I could see the players a module for Blackstone's Vault to review. Yeah, nice. I could totally <laughs> see a player stumbling into a mongrel man camp area. They surround the players, and then the players have to prove themselves and. They don't attack, and the mongrel men kind of like communicate how they don't want to be. They just want to be left alone. Right. It's a great test for your good characters. Yes. It's a great alignment test. Oh yeah, because you know you see these mongrel men. They look like they look, you know, by you know by their appearance, they don't look exactly very friendly. So, right. I mean, you, what the illustration here has him with a lobster claw for a hand, and he's got one cloven hoof and one regular, sort of like a rabbit's foot. <laughs> you know, a bit of everything. Yeah. I just thought it was interesting about their their mimicry ability. I thought it was really neat that they can perfectly, almost perfectly imitate the sound of any animal or monster. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which I thought was really cool. As far as the sounds, that's a, a good way of like... If you have a group of these mongrel men, they can, you know, mimic the sounds of like, uh, like a whole flight of dragons coming your way. Maybe I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I feel like they would use those mimicries to try to keep people from coming to them. They'd use them to right, scare you right. off and yeah, you know, make you not exactly. want to be there. Yeah, exactly. Like a roar of a big lion or something like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Exactly. That's how I was kind of thinking about that camouflage ability, which I was I was um, a little confused at first, how because it takes them a while to do the camouflage, one turn per uh, the camouflage himself. Uh huh. And what what are they doing exactly? Camouflaging with the uh, with the available environment. Yeah, it, it says when using the camouflage ability, mongrel men are able to hide themselves and their items with great skill. Normally, because they probably re- developed that survival skill. Yeah. Right. Normally, one yeah. turn is required for a mongrel man to camouflage himself, another creature, or an item. The chance of remaining mm-hmm. unnoticed is 80% plus 1% for every turn spent preparing the camouflage after the first. To a maximum of 95. Well, yeah, because he's sitting there prepping and slowly doing mm-hmm. it. So, yeah, I can see that happening. Yeah. So I thought that was kind of cool. I mean, they really come across to me as, uh, you know, kind of, I feel bad for these guys. <laughs> yeah. Aww. Yeah. 
you know, they all they want to do is be left alone. They 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 don't want anybody to see that you know what they look like, and they've got all these mimicries, you know, to keep people, you know, stay away, don't don't come after us. They can camouflage or not, themselves, uh, or at least uh, try to befriend those that are near them. You know, you think they're going to try to befriend somebody? Well, you know, if you're like in the in the module here, if the if a player characters come across this mongrelman hold that uh hideaway you know mm-hmm. if not befriend them at least prove have the player characters prove that there's some that there's some people that they could at least trust mm-hmm. you know so they would have to do something to prove their their trust to the mongrel man mm-hmm. now if the mongrel so, man looks like that what does the mongrel woman look like <laughs> probably the same thing <laughs> yeah probably yeah all right the cloven hoof is on the other side. Oh, okay. that's how you tell them apart. Okay. Yeah, there you right. go. Right. All right, so tell us how you use this creature. And uh, write us in, rficestaff at gmail.com. Or you can call us, 570-865-4210. The Roll for Initiative Hotline. Hotline. And uh, we'll be right back after this. Blackstone's Ball. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Blackstone's Vault. I am your host, Blackstone, and this section will be covering Module I-6, Ravenloft, by Tracy and Laura Hickman, published in 1983 by TSR Hobbies. And it's part of the I-series, the intermediate series of modules, and their recommended levels for this module are levels 5 to 7. Now, about this adventure, in case you don't already know, is because this module's been around for quite some time and has built up quite a reputation, is the PCs are lured to the land of Barovia by a mysterious stranger who gives them an unusual note that they need to find somebody that's been lost. Now, once they enter the land of Barovia, the lands and the village that is also named Barovia, the PCs are essentially trapped because once they breathe in the fog that surrounds the land of Barovia, they cannot leave unless they choke and die. And the only way to stop this is if they kill the vampire Strahd von Zorovich, who is ruling over the lands with fear and horror over the people. Now, the PCs, over a course of time, will find out that there are certain things, certain items that might aid them in destroying the Vampire Strahd. So if they play their cards right, and cards do play into this, they can defeat Strahd. Maybe. So let's talk about some of the PCs, NPCs that are involved. Of course, we have Strahd von Zorovich who is very unusual in the fact that he is not only a vampire, but he's a vampire magic user. So he's extremely powerful. Extremely powerful. And he's cunning and devious. So not only do you have something on the top of him being just a regular vampire, regular being a very broad term here, he's a very powerful vampire, and he also has magic using abilities. 
So not only can he suck the life out of you, but he can cast fireballs and lightning bolts too. You also have the uh, villager known Arena Kolyana, who apparently Strahd has fallen in love with. And that is a subplot to what is going on in this adventure, Ravenloft. And there's also uh, another interesting character that you would meet in the gypsy camp. Yes, there's gypsies. Is Madame Eva. She's a gypsy woman. She's a fortune teller. And she reads the fortunes of the of the PCs, which is integral to the adventure. And I'll explain a little bit about that later. Now, some of the major encounters that you would have. Well, you have three basic areas. The land around Barovia the village itself of Barovia, and Castle Castle Ravenloft itself. So let's start with the lands around the village of Barovia. You have the road that leads into the village and the lands of Barovia. More importantly are the gates. Once you pass the gates, that's pretty much it for the player characters. They've breathed in the, the fumes, the fog, and now they're pretty much trapped. And there's also another place called the Svalich Woods, where the PCs might find something that <laughs> would give some indications how bad things are in this land and village. Basically a dead body. And on that dead body, they find what appears to be a note that might indicate to the player characters that they're not the only ones that have been lured in to be killed by Strahd. Now, let's go with the village of Barovia itself. There are several interesting encounter areas, one being the Blood of the Vine Tavern, where the player characters would most likely meet the, bro the brother or stepbrother of Irina Kolyana. His name's Ismark. And he seems to be a rather tight-lipped individual, but when talking about Irina, he comes clean about things and might know a little information about the, the vampire Strahd himself and might be quite useful to the players. You also have Mad Mary when you go to her house. She has a daughter that has been missing, and the player characters might find her in the castle. You also have the Burgermaster's home. Uh, and once the PCs go into the Burgermeister's home, uh, they might find something that's not so uh, enjoyable when they find it. Basically, the Burgermaster is dead. So the plot thickens, because it was the Burgermaster who sent them along to find the girl. And then you also have a church where there's one lone priest who was holding out against the evils that are surrounding him, and he prays every night that the uh, the wolves and the bats and other evil creatures that Strahd unleashes doesn't get around him. He's just holding out for basically his dear life. And he's probably, I would say, I would play it as if he's probably barely holding on to his own sanity. And where there's a church, there's also a graveyard. And let me tell you, you don't want to be in this graveyard late at night. And last but not least is the gypsy encampment, where you would meet the one fortune-telling gypsy. And I'll get a little bit more about that a little bit later, how the fortunes are played out in Ravenloft.
But let's get on to the meat and potatoes. Castle Ravenloft itself. And what sort of encounters that you might have within here. You have so many different types of creatures. Uh, you have gargoyles, wraiths. There's an encounter with some witches. Obviously zombies and skeletons. Uh, there is a werewolf. So we got the whole gambit running here. We got witches, we got werewolves. More vampires, as if one vampire isn't enough. Yes, Strahd's got friends. And special Strahd zombies. Now, these are interesting because the, the zombies that served Strahd were actually the, the warriors who used to um, help him when he was alive, and he's through dark magics that he can't even recall from the past are the animated corpses of these warriors. Now the thing is about these warriors is when you're when the characters attack him after so much amount of damage, a uh, body part falls off or they fall down, but they reanimate. They have to be completely, totally destroyed in some fashion, either by fire or acid or what have you. So body parts will still attack when severed from a, a Strahd zombie. And you also have ghosts and specters. I believe there's a couple of iron golems in here as well. And it's an amazing assortment of creatures. Lots of undead, obviously. But a few other things that you would associate maybe with a gothic horror type setting. And of course, the if you're lucky enough, get to the crypt of Strahd. Now, some of the good stuff of this module is the fortune cards, which in itself make the adventure replayable. It's different every time you play this adventure. Now, there are, as I said before, there are several things that the adventuring party has, not necessarily all have to find, but would aid in destroying the vampire Strahd. There's a location of a holy symbol that is very special that could be used against Strahd. There's also his own, I guess you would call it, uh, autobiography, The Tome of Strahd, which might aid the players in finding a weakness to if they could find this tome. Also, you have the Sun Sword. Now, this actually takes a little bit of preparation in the DM's hand, because this sun sword is actually in two parts. It's not the whole sun sword. It's part of the sun sword is in Barovia. The other part, either be it the hilt or the actual sword itself, is already in possession of one of the player characters. So if you're going to DM this module, you're going to have to do a little prep work, maybe in a previous adventure or somewhere, that they pick up a part of a sword which might give off a minor dwomer of some of some magic so they might want to keep it and then ultimately the player characters will find out what Strahd's goal is through the fortune cards now this is how the fortune cards actually kinda of work you take a regular deck of 52 uh, cards you remove all the two four six eight and nine cards the jokers from the deck and then you're left with the the remainders of the cards, you shuffle them. Now, whatever comes up either determines the place where a certain thing is found, 
Um, there's also modifiers based on the suit of the card when it's drawn. And then a third table determines what Strahd's goals are. Now to give you an example of how all this works, I randomly drew up some cards. And the first card, and this is, you could do this either before the game is played, so you have it as, as a DM when preparing this, and then present the cards when they do the fortune telling uh, at the gypsy camp. So here are some of the cards I pulled. First card determines where the holy symbol against Strahd would would be. I pulled the ten of diamonds. The ten determines it's in the high tower room, and the suit diamond determines that the PCs gain a plus one bonus to hit while they're in the high tower room, but they get a penalty of one to their armor class. And there's some box text that you can read along with this when you find out what the cards are. And then the next one would be where the Tome of Strahd is. I pulled the three, it's in his study, and I got diamonds again. So again, you get the plus one bonus to hit, but a minus one to the armor class. Then I find out where Strahd von Zorovich is actually found all the time. And I pulled the King of Hearts, and that means he's in the King's Audience Hall. And with Hearts, once they're in the Audience Hall, they get a plus one bonus to hit and a bonus of plus one to their armor class. Then I determine where the Sun Sword is, and I pulled the Five of Clubs, and that determines it's in the Treasure Room. Haha, <laughs> big surprise. And Clubs, they get a minus one to hit, but they gain a bonus of one to their armor class. And finally, what are Strahd's goals? And I got the Ace of Diamonds. That means Strahd wants the Sun Sword. And the the suit doesn't really matter here. It's just the, the face value of the card. So, again... This is completely random every time you play this game, and it's this adventure, and it's really enjoyable in that respect. Another very unique feature of this module is, are the maps. The maps are, as far as I could determine, the first detailed maps in an adventure module where they are at a two-thirds angle, almost like a 3D type effect. It's very unique in that respect. I like that. So it's kind of interesting, but it can be a little bit hard to read if you're not uh, if you're not too uh, savvy on it. If it if it seems it could be a bit confusing. That's all I could say about that. You got to be very careful when reading the maps. You also have might have to do a little mental juggling, like if you were looking at it straight up and down. Uh, another interesting thing is this could be a good or bad thing. Is the players are trapped. They must defeat Strahd before they can leave Barovia and then there's Strahd himself <laughs> probably the most powerful adversary next to the Lich in Tomb of Horrors that the PCs would ever face he's a very devious very evil creature but he has a somewhat of a tragic uh, background that the characters might find out now some of what might be considered the uh, not so good stuff like I said, the map can be a bit confusing because it's it's a different angle than what most people might be uh, used to when looking at a map. But that can be easily overcome. There is there are some railroady type things in the adventure. Uh, the PCs just can't leave. If they try to leave, they'll choke and die because of the fog. So some 
player characters. Some DMs might not like that. It's it's somewhat uh, restricted in that respect. One of the things I, I've also noticed that the PCs are pretty much under constant attack and duress. Now, some DMs might like that. That's really going to keep their PCs on their toes, their players on their toes. But one of the things in here that, for example, is when they are spending a place for the night besides the castle itself, they are attacked nightly by dire wolves and bats. And there's a chance that a dire wolf might get inside where they're staying. And that happens every night. And lastly, Strahd, in my opinion, is way too powerful for 5th through 7th level characters. He's a vampire magic user. So what if you got the Sun Sword and the magic holy symbol, whatever? You still have to get to Strahd and kill him and dest- or destroy him. You still have to get past the gargoyles and the other vampires and the ghouls and zombies and skeletons and wraiths and and whoever knows what else um, monsters are lurking with inside the castle before you even could find him, maybe. So, in my opinion, I think the module should be really for like 7 to 10, maybe around there. If you're talking 5th or 7th level, it would have to be a party of at least 8 to 10 uh, player characters. I wouldn't go anything less than that. I just think... Strahd is way too powerful, what's going on there. So, overall, in my opinion, it's a good module. It's very unique. There's a lot of unique things in here for the time when it came out. But I just think Strahd is way too overpowerful for the levels that are indicated. And also, obviously, this is a great module to run around Halloween season. A bar, I mean, hands down, this is a great one for that time. Now, you can find it, obviously, in places like eBay or your local game conventions or some of the larger game conventions. Um, it was also uh, reprinted uh, a couple of times. It was reprinted in the Silver Anniversary box set that came out in 1999. And also uh, reprinted uh, around the same time, if I recall, uh, and it was revised for 2nd edition AD&D. And there's also a Hackmaster version called Robin Loft, if you can get your hands on that too. So there's several versions of it. The original, there's a couple of reprints, there's a Hackmaster version. So you know, you're, you're, you're pretty safe in finding something. So overall, really cool module. I think you would enjoy it. Uh, next module I hope to uh, review would be Lost Caverns of Tharzadum. So that'll be coming soon, because this one was a special request by someone, so I'll be getting on Lost Caverns of Tharzadun real soon. So this is Blackstone signing off, saying, May all your hits be crits. The Dragon's Horde Here we are in the Dragon's Horde, and today we're going to look at a treasure that is a little bit more utilitarian in nature, uh, kind of following – oh, I love it too. Well, following in the, 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 uh, in the vein of some of our previous dragon hordes where we've talked about uh, magical items that can hold unlimited things or produce 
you know, fantastical things, both good and bad. Uh, we're talking about Bucknard's Everfull Purse. And uh, Bucknard's Everfull Purse, I don't know much about, uh, you know, I always like it when we've got one of these magic items that's named after a uh, character from, I'm assuming, from Gygax or Arneson's games. Probably. Yeah. So I, I, don't, I don't know the background on Bucknard, actually. Uh, I know I that he was. Uh, I, I know that it was a, he was a wizard, um, but beyond that, I mean, I, I just don't know. So maybe somebody can. Uh, uh, actually, you know what? I'm, I'm doing a little bit of. I'll, I'll admit it. I'll do a little Wikipedia looking right now, <laughs> and uh, I'm, I'm seeing things in here that he was uh, uh, part of the Circle of Eight that that Mordenkainen put together. And ah. that he was uh, – his sister was slain by a, by sons of Caius, the ones that we've Ugh. talked about before. So I'm sure there's quite a lot to learn about Bucknard. But uh, we've, what we've got here from him uh, is something that's very useful. It's just It just looks like a small leather purse. Um, I like that they call in here a magical poke, You know, just kind of reminding you that a poke – like a, what was it? A pig in a poke is actually like a pocket. Yeah. Uh, it, what it really does is it just makes sure that you've always got enough change. You've always got some 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 walking around money. Yeah. When it, whenever you reach into the purse, it'll be full of coins, and you can pull out, um, you know, enough to uh, get you by. So it's going to contain, for some reason, twenty six of uh, whatever type of coin it is that. That we're talking about. So it'll either contain a, a mixture of silver, electrum, and gold pieces, copper, electrum, and platinum pieces, or copper, electrum pieces, and gems. Gems that aren't too expensive, you know, 10 to 100 gold pieces. Mm-hmm. As long as you're not greedy, as long as you're just reaching in to get enough to, to pay the barman, to cover the inn, whatever it is, it'll continue to duplicate coins and to to have them for you. But if you ever decide to just pour all the coins out and you left you leave it for more than a few minutes, the magic is lost. It's now really empty. Yeah. But and here's the sentence that I think is a little bit open to interpretation by some constitutional scholars. <laughs> <laughs> it says if totally emptied and left for more than a few minutes, the magic of the purse is lost. But if one of each type of coin is placed within the bag, the next morning, 26 of each applicable type will be found inside. So I guess they're saying that it loses the magic, but then you can make the magic come back if you wait overnight. That's what it sounds like to me. Yeah. So if you dump, I, out, the, so if you dump the thing out after you find it and say after like five minutes, you don't put a coin in. The Dwomer's mm-hmm. gone. But if you put right. a, a one copper, one electron, one platinum in there, like if it was for the right one, mm-hmm. then, yeah, you'll have 26 of each type. So I think what you're saying is not only – okay, if you – let's say we've got different ones you can roll for here. It's It's generally going to be – there's three different types. The first two are fairly common. The last one is pretty uncommon. Yeah. The second type, like you were just saying, contains copper, electrum, and platinum. Yeah, so I have a character you, who has that one. Okay, great. So if you if you dump it all out and it loses its magic, and you try to put copper, silver, silver, electrum, and platinum in, it's not going to work. Not going to work. No, it's got to be exactly the. It's got to be one of each of the right kind. 
Right. And remember, whenever okay. you first find this thing, it's going to be full of the applicable type. So I remember yeah. when my character found his, it was had 26 copper, 26 electrum, 26 platinum in there. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that hopefully is a hint. And when you try to identify the magic item, oh, okay, it's this type of person. We have to do that. And I have to do this. So if you find a pouch or a purse with 26 each of three different kinds of coins or one of them being gems, you could be pretty sure you got a buck, buck nerd's ever full purse. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. But here's the thing. So it creates those each morning. So in the morning, it's got 26 uh, – it, it fills up to 26. Mm-hmm. So it, you know, if, if you'd spent a few of them, it'll, it'll always fill it back up to exactly that number. Mm-hmm. Well, if you find it midday, let's say that you find this purse that a, a another character had been carrying it and they've spent some of it, then you could definitely find one that had been depleted and just hadn't been refilled for the next day yet. And it could still be a Buckner's Everfull purse. Yeah. So you should always wait at least a day to see if it refills itself before you just uh, you know, toss it out or, or spend all the money in it and don't put anything back in. At least give it a day to find out if it refills itself. That's why it's 26, because you leave one of each type in there. <laughs> you yeah. don't take all 26 out. Good point. Yeah, exactly. Well, you don't – as long as you leave – that's the other thing. It says if it's totally emptied – Yeah. See, it gets, it, it gets us tricky here. If it's totally emptied, then the magic is lost, um, and you have to put one of each back in. But I think as long as you – don't ever totally empty it. You don't have to leave one of each. You can empty it except for one coin, and it'll fill itself back up. It's just the magic has to stay active, and that's how you keep it active. Yeah, well, I think so. Yeah. Well, well, the magic is lost until you put the coin back in. Right. So, I mean, and it's not too big of a deal either way. I mean, it's not like you're losing a great treasure um, if you go for a day without this being filled. Basically, this is just supposed to... Even as it says in there, add a little bit of spice to the game. Allow your player to be able to go around and spend money without looking like he's. Wait, what you talking about, Willis? How, how would you like, Jason, if you went to work every day, and then you went to buy lunch and there was money in your wallet? You went to buy dinner and there was money in your wallet. The next day you went to work, you didn't put any money in your wallet, and there was money in your wallet again. <laughs> uh-huh. Wouldn't you be like, "Whoa, this is awesome, dude"? Yeah, that's why Bucknard's Everfull for yeah. Purse is awesome. <laughs> exactly. Yes. This is not something to be like, you know, <laughs> and thrown to the side. <laughs> that's a good point. So, yeah. I mean, because I know, I'm trying to remember which character I have has this, but it's that second type. Every day, he's got 20, he's got another 26 copper, electrum, and platinum coming to him. Every well, single morning. The platinum's a big deal. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, but no, he well, if he takes it out, yeah, he's if he got takes it out, oh. yeah. Oh, yeah. of course, <laughs> and we put it in the bag of holding. <laughs> yeah, that'd be awesome because every day you take out twenty five, and you know the next day you're going to get another twenty five again. Exactly. Well, okay, so that's a good point. If you've got a character who is basically earning twenty five platinum a day just for walking around, which is pretty hefty. Yeah. Um, yeah. as a DM, are you going to let that go on forever? I can't see why not, as long as they spend it. Hmm. I don't know. I, I think at some point, I mean, if they're actually taking that out and tossing it in the bag of holding every day, that character is getting pretty rich pretty quickly. 
and people are going to start noticing this. Well, that's where you start to have like hirelings and and hangers on and so on that uh, want to ask for money from your player character. <laughs> yeah, or or I guess you could just your character gets targeted for for thievery. Somebody, some oh, some yeah. jealous NPC notices what it is, and uh, oh yeah, you know, there's, there's a chance. You know there. what? I just noticed about this magic item. What? What's that? No matter what the three types, you always get electrum pieces. Mm. That just proves it right there that the Electrum piece was Gary Gygax's favorite type of coin. <laughs> that proves it. I know. I mean, every Gygax adventure, what is it written? There's somewhere, there's like a whole bunch of Electrum pieces, right? <laughs> I know, I know, yeah. So. Well, he loved the Electrum. I guess well, so. So there we have a great utilitarian, but also incredibly fun to have magical item. Uh, so if if you come across a purse in the game, be attentive. It could be one of these. I'd make the purse like really annoying, like like loudly pink or something, so players would not want to have it out all the time. It sounds like a slot machine paying out. When we came back from uh, Gen Con last year, one of our guys couldn't go, and so he asked us to pick up something for him. Yeah. So we got him a dice bag. It's bright pink with a unicorn. Uh, oh. And it's a, it go jumping over a rainbow, and I think oh, there's okay. some berries around it. I, I was worried about nice. you, Jason, when you bought that, and I saw you buy, buy that. I'm like, uh, okay. oh yeah, you. Saw- <laughs> I, I look. That's why I looked at you. I'm like, Jason, <laughs> and he you brings were just, it to. He yeah. brings it to every game. You just went. It's a. It's a gag gift. I went. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure, gag gift. Uh-huh. Yeah. I just think if the thing when you put your coins in it too it goes ding. Just like a slot machine. Ding, 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 ding. And too bad slot machines don't use coins anymore. Yeah, we'll bring that back. <laughs> yeah. So that's going to wrap up the show this week. Nice little interesting show about martial arts and sweeping the leg and spies like us. Yeah, sweep the leg. Sweep the leg. Cobra Kai never dies. <laughs> <laughs> I love watching the Karate Kid movie. It's the best. Anyway, so we'll be back next week with another show, and uh, hopefully we'll have some more good, juicy bits of awesomeness. Oh, and hey, everybody who's uh, out on the East Coast, don't forget that Icon is coming up in just about 10 days or less by the time you hear this show. So go to iconsf.org and uh, come on out. I'll, I'll be there. So uh, oh, yeah, come, on to, come on out to Icon. You're going to be sitting in the panel with Frank Mentzer, right? Nice. Absolutely. Oh, awesome. Yeah. I know this weekend I got Mepicon, the local Pennsylvania convention going on. Awesome. So I'm going to go to that and play some games and buy some stuff. And So everybody get over to Mepicon and say hi to Vince. <laughs> yeah. And I got nothing. <laughs> Aww. We got, got Gen... Nothing. Oh, never mind. <laughs> we got Gen Con coming up in four months now and counting. Hey, I'm, I'm, ca- I'm counting down... Too. Don't forget to register for events like I did last year, forgetting to register for events. It's May 1st. Get Set it on your calendar so you don't miss out on all the first edition games. Well, hopefully you'll get the email on, like, you went to the spam folder. Oh, I've got it. I've got a big <laughs> sign on my wall that says May 1st. Don't forget, dummy. <laughs> <laughs> like, like last year, you're like, oh, people seem to be registering. Why didn't I get to register? <laughs> All right, so we'll get back to you next week. Keep it original, keep it old school, and sweep the leg. Bye, everyone. Bye.
Roll for initiative. <laughs> 